This is Vis-a-Vis, a podcast series brought to you by the Alliance Program at Columbia University. Vis-a-Vis features conversations that challenge our understanding of key global, economic, and social issues by casting them in a transatlantic perspective. I'm Emmanuel Catan. I head the Alliance Program, a partnership between Columbia University and three French universities, Sciences Po, Paris and Panthéon-Sorbonne, and École Polytechnique. Every episode, I sit down face-to-face with, or as we say in French, vis-a-vis, some of the most insightful thinkers on both sides of the Atlantic. I hope you enjoy our conversation. According to many scientists and historians, we have entered a new historical period, the age of the Anthropocene. For the first time in history, humans are altering the makeup of planet Earth. The use of fossil fuels and the impact of global warming are generating irreversible changes in our planet's history. Although we are increasingly aware of these transformations, we still experience human history and the history of our planet as two distinct phenomena, as if they were taking place on different timelines. How can we reconcile human time with Earth time? Will such a reconciliation provide us with the tools we need to avert climate catastrophe and change the course we are engaged on? In order to tackle these questions, Vis-a-Vis is honored to welcome François Hartog and Frédéric Aitouati. François Hartog is a professor emeritus at the École des Hautes Études en Sciences Sociales in Paris. He is noted for his regimes of historicity theory, as well as his analyses of presentism and the contemporary experience of time. His book, Kronos, The West Confronts Time, was published by Columbia University Press in 2022. Frédéric Aitouati, who is joining us remotely, is a historian of literature and modern science and a theater director. Her research focuses on the narratives and aesthetics of the Anthropocene, particularly in theater and cartography. Her books include Fictions of the Cosmos, published in 2011, and Terraforma, published in 2019. She has worked closely with the philosopher Bruno Latour, who passed away recently, on the creation of plays and that challenge the ideas about climate and earth, uh, including Gaia Global Circus, Inside, and Moving Earths. Professor Achtog, let me turn to you first. Um, In your book, Kronos, The West Confronts Time, you use the example of Meursault, the narrator of Albert Camus' novel, The Stranger, to describe someone who is stuck in the present moment. But this present is not... uh, pregnant with possibilities. It's a present that is atrophied. It's emptied of all its potential and any relationship also to the past or the future. Is this the kind of present that, uh, according to you, we inhabit today? Yes and no, I would say. Yes, because we experienced in our world since 40 years or so, some sort of presence which seems to move without any perspective of the future or we don't know what to do with the past. But on the other hand, the present in which Mersou is stuck is, uh, seems to me, referring to the 1920s, the crisis 
after the First World War. And you have nearly at the same time the nausea of, of Sartre. And his main character, Roconta, is also totally d discovered that there is only present. So you have this manifestation of presentism in the 30s, 40s, but when the war came, suddenly Sartre discovered history and the frightening future. So, so, and what we are experiencing is a bit different, I think, what I call the contemporary presentism. Let, let's get into this because uh, presentism is a very powerful idea and it's central to your work. It describes the fact that we are completely wrapped up in the present moment and more specifically, as I understand it, that projecting ourselves in the future is extremely difficult. This is an experience that we we all felt um, when we were confined during the worst of the, of the COVID crisis. Um, but it's also the fact that we do not find the tools in the past in order to create and build the present moment. Um, how would you define presentism? And I know that in your work, you distinguish the presentism of of today with the kind of presentism that the Christian church has created in, in past century. How would you define that difference? The contemporary presentism, so to speak, emerged from the questioning of the future as a driving force. The future in the most part of the 19th century and first half of the 20th century, future was the goal. You had to go to the future as fast as possible. But after the Second World War, after the extermination of the Jews, um, it was no longer possible to believe in a progress of humanity going hand in hand with a progress, technical progress. So there is a dissociation, so to speak. And from then on, the possibility of present taking, so to speak, the whole space, making the future disappear and the past disappear too. And that's also the moment where memory comes in the picture. The memory wave of the 70s uh, in Europe, which is at the same time the expression of this rupture and also a way to try to escape presentism and just one more word about the Christian presentism and the contemporary presentism. I try to define what I call the Christian regime of historicity at the beginning of the first part of the book. And it seems to me that there is a Christian regime and the, its main characteristic are you have only the present between two limits, which are incarnation, so the coming of Christ into the world. Yeah, which opens a radically new time. And apocalypse The last ju judgment. And last judgment. Mm -hmm. And in between, for the first Christians, there was only present. A present with no substance. And they were waiting for the end. So Christian regime is a, an apocalyptical presentism. The one in which we are is different. There was no apocalypse in view. 
only this present, which through the digitalization of our world seems to vanish and to remain forever. So th that's this perception of something which has absolutely no consistency, but which at the same time lasts. And uh, now things are different, I think, from 20 years or so, because the possibility of an end because of what you mentioned at the beginning of the Anthropocene or the planetary age or what, uh, reintroduce something which was absolutely absent from the modern time, that is a limit. And uh, when you see a limit, you enter in a new time, which becomes more or less the time of the end. Not the end of time, but the time of the end. And that was the time in which the Christian were. I'm not saying that the same, but you have, I think you can draw some things on this analogy. That's really interesting. And you mentioned the Anthropocene and, and this new limit on which we are projecting ourselves. Professor Aitwati, I'm turning to you because you have of course, dedicated quite a lot of your work to, to thinking uh, and trying to articulate our relationship with the Anthropocene. I'm wondering whether you feel that we have the right tools. Uh, are we correctly prepared to understand what this new limit means and how it transforms our, our relationship with the world? It's the right question, of course. Um, are we equipped to understand what's going on. I was listening with great attention to, to what Professor Artog was saying about this new way of, of considering time. I would say that what interests me a lot is the fact that there has been not only a huge change in time, but also in space, in our relationship to space. In the 17th century, of course, there is this big change in the conception of the cosmos and the tools the astronomers, philosophers used was uh, mostly fictional tools, you know, that before having the right tools, they had to imagine how you can see the earth from outside and how you can see it fictionally moving in the sky. Today, what we have is also a change in our vision of the earth not because we discovered that the Earth is not at the center of the universe anymore, not because we discovered that the Earth turns, but we discovered that the Earth reacts to our action. It's one way to define the Anthropocene, to say that now we are as big as volcanoes, which is a, a change in, in scale. But the point I wanted to make is that the Anthropocene as a tool is interesting because it is both geological and historical. As you know, the word Anthropocene really comes from uh, geological studies and the hypothesis, which hasn't been completely confirmed yet, that there is a geological uh, layer of the influence of humans. And there has been a lot of discussion, which is, again, both geological and historical about the beginning of the Anthropocene. Is it the beginning of the nuclear trials, when you can see the plutonium everywhere on, on the geological layers. So it's very interesting for me to see how a geological discussion, very technical, 
stratigraphical discussion becomes actually a discussion for historians and philosophers and politicians, becomes uh, the way to define uh, a new period in history. And do you think that um, this reverses the power relation between human beings and uh, the environment we inhabit and, and, and planet Earth. In other words, the traditional view since the 17th century with Descartes is that, uh, you know, we human beings are masters and possessors of nature, that we basically are there to control and through technology to advance human progress. Now it seems the Anthropocene is, is, is actually reversing this relationship and that if we understand ourselves as part of this environment, we are also submitted by its, to its laws and also in a, in, a, in a kind of irreversible way in the sense that there is an impending catastrophe if uh, the, the course of, of you know, climate warming is not reversed. What do you think about this reversal, um, Professor Atwati? It's a very interesting question because it's a double re reversal in a way. It's a paradox because people say, look, we are small. We are humans. We are nothing compared to the history of the earth. We have to do a double intellectual movement. First, to, to realize that, of course, we are not maîtres et possesseurs de la nature anymore, but we are at the scale of the earth. And again, in terms of historiography, it's so interesting because it's, that's the concept by Dipesh Akrabarti, which I find so powerful, the idea of geohistory, the idea that the history of the earth and the history of humans are joined for a while, at least. They are not divided. We thought we had our own little historical path as humans. And then you had the long billions of years of the history of the earth. But with the Anthropocene, those two parallel histories suddenly meet. They are at the same scale. That's why I say, I say it's a paradox. First, you have to realize that part of the modernity, of course, can actually influence the earth beyond its limits. And at the same time, it means that, of course, we are not masters anymore. This issue of scale is also something, um, Professor Artog, that you raise uh, in your book in the sense that you describe the fact that we cannot easily understand ourselves as a whole human species or as humanity. We tend to you know, view ourselves as part of a community, a nation, a country, or a family, but seeing ourselves as the seven or eight billion people on earth is very difficult to grasp. And doesn't that raise also a paradox? Because if we are going to do something about the challenges that we are facing today, we need to act as a collective humanity. Yeah, as uh, it was said just a minute ago, the world history and the earth history meet, but the, the time involved in the two are in a way incommensurable. And the, the question is, how can we relate the two? Not trying to pretend that the Earth's history will be absorbed by world history and world history are not going to disappear in Earth's history. We don't know, really. I don't, don't think we can, so to speak, articulate the two. But we have to think the two 
together. And that's the big, extremely difficult thing we have to do. And I don't think we, we, really, we have so far resolved it. Because if you say, for example, okay, there is no doubt that capitalism plays a great role in the emergence or the development of the, the situation in which we are today. But when you say that, you remain in the world, the time of the world, and you think that you can inside this time of the world resolve the problem. And so you miss the incommensurability of this, uh, the earth time. And especially when you live in a presentist moment, it's even more difficult. In your presentist bubble, not able to see beyond your feet. Okay, and and so it's even more difficult for us today to acknowledge this new situation, which is extremely disturbing, and even more disturbing because we have also to take into consideration the fact that this coming future, Chronos, I would say, that's a Chronos time, enormous. But ordinary time, you have also to acknowledge the fact that probably we have modified the climate already for the maybe 100,000 years to come. Right. And, and this incommensurable time that you describe creates great problems for us in terms of representation. I mean, we, we cannot grasp it. And, and that reminds me uh, one passage in one of your books, Professor Aitwati, Comte de la Lune, which was published in 2011, where you talk about the blue marble, this picture of planet Earth that was taken in, in 1972 from space. And you make this observation that it's very difficult for us to represent ourselves, the whole and entire planet. So we have, we have a double challenge, it seems, that we, it's difficult to represent ourselves sort of cosmological time, but it's also very difficult to represent ourselves, the planet in which we, we inhabit. My question to you, Professor Aitwati, is what are the, the kind of tools or solutions that perhaps art or visual representation that we can find in art can bring to this conundrum? Um, how can we use art and theater as, as, as you have to actually bring ourselves to visualize the world that we inhabit in, in all its scale and its range. I think you're very right in, in making this parallelism between space and time. I find really interesting this to put this space-time problem under the same word of incommensurability. The way I tried to analyze it uh, in relation to the 17th century philosophy was to say, look, there was a, a change in, in the way we were conceiving the, the cosmos and one of the paradoxical tools to grasp this incommensurable earth was to go through fiction in space and to look fictionally at the earth from space. To say, look, when Kepler, Descartes, Huygens... Wilkins, Godwin used fiction in the 17th century. It was with a heuristic aim. It was not 
just to write stories or a kind of early science fiction. Uh, so let's take seriously fiction as a tool to grasp something which is beyond our perceptual capacities. So if we take that as a serious tool at a moment of great cosmological change, revolution, then one might say, and that's, that's exactly what I'm trying to do with my theatrical work, uh, what one might say, okay, maybe today those tools, fiction, art, creating new images, those tools could help us a bit, at least. How do we represent that? How do we represent the new theories of Earth? We need images. So what I find really interesting is that exactly like in the 17th century, you had philosophers, astronomers, writers, painters working together in order to um, create a new vision of the cosmos. Today, one might hope that there will be more and more alliances. I think this is the, the title of your program, alliances between um, philosophers, artists, historians, scientists, to help us grasp this incommensurable cosmos, Earth, with its new face. And indeed, I think, um, you know, what you're saying also is that the great challenge uh, for us in the face of this new scale of time is not to lose hope, is to find ways um, of envisaging action. And, and the, great, the great challenge that we're faced with is that we do feel impotent. We do feel that our action in, in the face of climate warming is derisory. And that's, I think, where the idea of the apocalypse might be a, an interesting instrument. Um, you evoke this at the end of the uh, of your book by you know citing also Bruno Latour, and the idea that the apocalypse should not necessarily be a source of fear, but should be a fertile ground for us to basically build a, a new relationship with time. Uh, I'd like you to explain what you mean by that, because when when we think of apocalypse, we think of the end of time. We think of something that is inspiring terror and fear, and there is nothing positive about it. You are right about this uh, evocation of apocalypse, which became quite common today, and especially in uh, uh, fictions. Many, many films dealing more or, less, more or more explicitly with apocalypse uh, for maybe 20 or 25 years or so. But there is fund a fundamental misunderstanding because People are no longer no longer read the good old text, and this apocalypse is presented only as a negative thing. And of course, that's not a pleasant moment. I hope we could avoid it. But apocalypse in a world which is no longer Christian, apocalypse is only the end. But for the Christian, and I'm not saying that you have to go back to Christianity, but for the Christian, apocalypse is the end of time, but also the beginning of something radically new, a new earth and a new uh, time. That, that means you enter the uh, eternity of God. I'm not saying that we are going to, through such a thing, but apocalypse is, if I use my tools, it represents not Kronos time, but Kairos, let's say Kairos introduces a new time, a radically new time, 
So if we move from a Kronos vision, purely negative, to a Kairos vision of the moment in which we are, that doesn't mean that you have to introduce mysticism or, or whatever, but that's a, a, a different attitude toward what's coming on. And that is, perhaps you could, we could see our present situation not at the end of time or the end of everything, but as an occasion, an ekairos, which might open the possibility of something new. And what you mean by kairos, just to be clear, is is a different conception of time to Kronos. Kairos yeah. is yeah. represents the the opportunity, the yeah. occasion, the moment the, to the, be seized. The right moment, the decisive moment. You have to size the occasions. And if you miss it, that's bad for you. Okay. So that's a concept which come from the Greek and uh, ancient Greek. And, and it was reused and transformed by the Christians. So this old schema of time can be put in uh, use in order to try to figure out what can we, the way in which we could work in this present situation. If you put you in the mood of a possible apocalypsis, you will be pushed to act in order to avoid it. I see, I see. That's really enlightening. Um, Professor Aitwati, let me end with you and perhaps ask you for your own assessment also of what the recent years, and particularly I'm thinking about confinement and COVID, has done to our relationship with time. Has, has it changed the way we envisage ourselves in a permanent way? I, th I know that there was a lot of hope during confinement that we would not go back to the world as it is today. And I'm, I'm, I'm wondering, in light of what both of you have said about the, the need, really, to see ourselves as one single human species, as one single humanity, did the, the COVID crisis create or provide a model for us to act as a human species? And, and is there a, a kairos, as Professor Artog says, a, an opportunity for us to seize in this? Yeah, again, I think uh, theater will be my way to answer you because the last, very last play we did together with Bruno is called Viral. And it's a pandemic play. It's a play we imagined during the lockdown in Nanterre Amandier when everything was completely closed and shut down. And the idea of Bruno was, as always, completely um, paradoxical. He thought, okay, let's take the virus, virality, as an pertinent way to describe our new cosmos. Why virality could be an interesting, uh, relevant model? Well, because it's a way to connect, as we have learned during the lockdown. We are all connected. There is some non-human things which are changing completely our societies and ways of moving, doing things in society within 40, in 48 hours, you know, everything could be stopped by this thing. So I think for Bruno, the virus was so interesting as a final demonstration of this connectedness and, and network. Um, it became a very, very interesting way to think uh, this connectedness, not only between humans, but between all living things on Earth. Great, Professor Aitwati, Professor Artok, thank you so much for a really inspiring discussion. Uh, I think that you have provided us with um, 
great insights into the, the, the paradoxes of the world that we're living in, um, the challenges of, of thinking uh, this new time that we have entered into. And also you have provided us with uh, some conceptual tools and ideas to try at least to grasp uh, this new relationship with the world and also with the challenges um, that we are all facing. Thank you so much to both of you. Thank you. Thank you. Vis-a-vis is brought to you by the Alliance Programme, a partnership between Columbia University, Paris en Panthéon-Sorbonne, Sciences Po, and École Polytechnique. This podcast is produced by Monica Hunter-Hart and Georgia O'Neill, and I'm Emmanuel Catan. Special thanks to Columbia Libraries. If you like what you hear, please leave us a review on your podcast platform. If you're interested in learning more about the Alliance Programme and how we support academic exchanges, research and collaboration between the US and France, please visit us at alliance.columbia.edu or follow us on Facebook, Twitter X, and Instagram. Make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks so much for listening.